Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined for this episode, uh, which will be somewhat of an unusual episode in in a few ways, uh, by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Brian, how are you doing? What tell us a little bit about your surroundings, your your context, how you're how you're doing in this mid-May moment? Yes, it's definitely. Um, uh, well, yesterday I had the I had the pleasure of participating in the live in-person commencement ceremony for the class of 2020. Uh, the university invited them back. And so they did the full, they had had a virtual ceremony in 2020. And now we're going into what is this elaborate Fandango uh, at Princeton of sort of first reunions and then commencement for class of 2022. So we're still in this space of classes have been out for a while, but all the rituals of academia are are underway amidst the constant oscillation of northeastern weather. We are definitely being reminded that New Jersey is a very well manicured swamp right now, and that is coming up in all kinds of ways. So, yeah, yeah. So 2020 came back. Is is at Princeton something going to happen for 2021, or did you manage to have an adequate ritual conclusion to that? Commencement. Yeah, so they 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 shifted the location of commencement last year to an athletic facility. Previously, it had been taking an open air athletic facility, and previously, all commencements had taken place on one of the campus greens immediately adjacent to the oldest building on campus. And it does seem that they now are moving forward with this larger, probably easier to allow for greater capacity and easier crowd management since it doesn't abut a major city street and all these kind of things. So I think that the among the ways that we've seen throughout the industry of higher education, how the pandemic has led to adjustments that have slowly become sort of permanent changes in certain calendrical rhythms mm -hmm. and certain kind of administrative features. This seems to be one of them. So they did have an open air, very limited participation uh, for 2021. So uh, 2020 was the only one that hadn't yeah. had an in-person ritual. So uh, that yeah. they restaged that for them yeah. the, yesterday. Yeah. Well, weather and commencement will be a theme of this uh, preliminary segment. So, so listeners to the podcast will know that we normally do the uh, uh, multi parter the the sort of three-headed format this episode it is just brian and myself um this episode is being recorded and released after um a couple of of delays um we have had third co-hosts lined up but um uh in both cases the people that we had scheduled to to do the podcast had to step back for um caretaking responsibilities of various types and, and in one type pandemic related um, um, so we're deciding to go ahead and record it just as a sort of two-hander, um, but it reminds us that the disruptions of the pandemic, the pressures that are on all of us, but in particular on people who are um, caretakers for members of their family, uh, people who remain vulnerable to the pandemic, uh, that still goes on. That is still a facet of, of, of our lives. So we wanted to acknowledge that before diving in. Um, um, in other unusual wrinkles, I'm recording from my house. We are having WashU commencement today. I went to campus to try to get to my office, but there was also a massive thunderstorm that brought everyone in their cars to campus. I was unable to access my office, so I'm recording in my living room. So 
that feels a little bit different as well. Um, today on the podcast, we have, um, as usual, we have three topics that, that we're excited to dive into. We read Patrick Anderson's article in the December 2021 um, issue of Theater Journal, Dramaturgies of Policing, Performance Theory, Police Violence, and the Limits of Accountability. Um, this, pa- this paper was the, um, the, the later stage of development of a plenary address that, that Patrick gave at um, Astro. 2019, which Brian and I uh, co-organized along with our colleagues, Caritha Mitchell and Charlotte Canning. Um, We are going to talk about awards. It is awards season uh, with the recent announcement of Tony nominations and Pulitzer Prizes. Um, But in a way, it's sort of always awards season. And we wanted to pivot this topic and uh, talk about the broader significance of awards in the performing arts and in academia and in general. And we watched the recent documentary on HBO, Spring Awakening, Those You've Known, which tells the story of a reunion concert of the cast of the 2006 Broadway musical Spring Awakening. Um, uh, I'm excited to get into that and and see what what Brian thinks about it. Um, So we'll dive right in. So we read Patrick Anderson's article, Dramaturgies of Policing. This, um, in a nutshell, I mean, it's it, in a way, it's a, a, a complicated article to summarize because Patrick, in his um, uh, sort of characteristic mode of, of, of personal and, and semi-autobiographical writing, um, the central focus of it is his experience on the um, San Diego... Uh, uh, community review board on police practices. So it is about the intersection of performance as it's theorized performance as it's lived. Um, and the, um, the actual bureaucratic management of police practices and training in a moment when, um, uh, police violence, especially against, um, people of color is a problem that, um, that remains in crisis. Um, but it weaves together a lot of his experiences with, um, not only performance theory, not only that, that specific experience that he had on the, um, civilian review board. Um, but, uh, his longer experience with, with firearms, um, and his sort of positionality sort of, um, you know, shifting and and evolving positionality with regard to this issue. Um, so I guess I, I don't know, there's, there are a lot of things to, to bring up here. Um, there's different sort of moves within the article and narrative narratives about, um, uh, Patrick's encounters with guns, um, the sort of analysis of the coercive agencies around firearms as a culture, uh, his in-person analysis of police trainings using theatrical technology, terminology, affectivity, and specific points of engagement with performance theory, which is a sort of troubling theme um, that he encounters. Why do notions of ephemerality, opacity, and transparency um, citationality appear in the, the, um, police training scenarios. 
So, um, Brian, uh, I'm curious to know what your sort of initial reactions or, or sort of strongest reactions were to reading this article. Well, my first reaction was thrilled that it was published. You know, I was like, I, I you know, I remember being so enthusiastic about the uh, plenary abstract and so enthusiastic about the panel that it was on that Caritha Mitchell moderated. And it was a really sort of alongside uh, other folks dealing with sort of the sort of ways in which performance theory was very much sort of a, how do we understand the crises, the violences, the hostilities and the realities of our moment, especially in a moment when so many performance metaphors seem to be infusing other spaces of public life, whether it be um, uh, the idea of uh, talking about uh, the previous president as a performance artist or talking about um, the sort of the conspiracy theorist ideas of uh, sort of false flags and using sort of actors to, that this is all a staging, this is all a virtual virtual uh, thing. And so the panel was really opening up that. And I thought what was so extraordinary about um, about uh, Patrick's choosing to ask the question, why, what do I do with the fact that some of the treasured terms of performance studies and performance theory are infusing into this practice of of, of police self-justification um, that were so troubling to him. And so the presentation at Aster, at Aster 2019 was really moving. And I remember rushing up to Patrick after the thing saying, when are you going to publish this? And he wasn't sure whether or not he would be allowed to, what were the mm -hmm. sort of... And so luckily he's an experienced... Um, uh, sort of ethnographer. He's trained in sort of a lot of the social scientific methods that infuse certain strands of performance studies. So he had everything all set up so he could. And I was just thrilled that he found a stance and found co found editorial interest with Sean Metzger and E.J. Westlake to really sort of find a way that this piece could responsibly and ethically and in a timely and urge, uh, responding to the timely urgency of it could find its way to publication in one of our major journals. So my first reaction was like, yay. And then um, just having, mm. and I found, I, I devoured it the second, I still get the journal in hard copy in my, at my home. And so when it came, I read it immediately and I found it just utterly, uh, just sort of moving and captivating as a sort of a, as, as, as a ruminative self-reflexive study, uh, that begins with personal narrative concludes with a poem, you know, these kinds of all these devices that performance studies as an interdisciplinary modality allows scholarly writers and so uh, yeah, I just let it wash through me and over me in a way of just sort of just thrilled to be able to read it. And so it was a gift also to return to it this time and to read it with a slightly different I, uh, I like reading, knowing I was reading it for conversation. And again, it was just, I think, opening up these really crucial questions. Um, and I'm still puzzling. I still don't know that I've wrapped my brain around the intervention that Anderson brings around the question of performative time. And I do think that that is particularly possibly mm -hmm. relevant to us in our COVID moment when so many understandings embodied and material under, and physical and ritual and calendrical understanding of time have been so discombobulated. But this idea of, of something that is performed with the anticipation that it will be performed again is a different way of understanding time than we yep. than I have used performativity to think about. And so building upon Tracy Davis's notion, Patrick really does use this as a way to ruminate into thinking through how do we need to understand performative time as a way of scripting violence uh, in mm -hmm. both the micro and the macro levels. And so so I just thought it was really just a rich experience and and a richly a rich the, richly theoretical provocation that I don't know that I fully wrap my brain around, but I find mm -hmm. it to be something I, I'm happy to ponder. I am very much 
much with you on that. Um, the, you know, one, one of the, I have a lot of reactions. One was that I, I love the points of contact that he's making with performance theory and the specific performance theory that he's invoking her Blau, um, uh, and, um, uh, Peggy Phelan, he, in a way he sort of compares them as being concerned with performance as, uh, being concerned with death, right. Um, being concerned with mortality. Um, but the article does sort of, there is a kind of culminating theatric or yeah, I almost said theatrical, but theatrical, the theoretical claim around, uh, Davis's concept of performative time. Uh, he cites her at length performative time quoting, uh, Davis now performative time accounts for the experience of recognition distilled indefinitely into and from future occurrences. And he sort of teased that up by referring to Ruth Wilson Gilmore's 1993 essay, terror, austerity, race, gender, excess theater, in which Gilmore recounts a moment of listening to a radio coverage of the Rodney King, um, trials, um, while she's driving down the stretch of road where Rodney King was, um, uh, pulled over and, and, and brutalized. And so he mentions this sort of, uh, the, the pertinence of performative time in the context of the way police are trained, but this leads him to the claim that this, that the performative time, and I'm quoting Anderson here, resists the reformism of minor repairs and refutes the impact of incremental change. So, I read him as saying, you know, my experience in the, you know, civilian review board and watching the police be trained and talking to people and trying to offer, you know, us in a sort of civic mode, uh, contained by all of these, um, you know, organizational structures is that actually the reform is not necessarily the, the avenue we should take. And so I, I like you, I think they're, they're in a way I'm, I'm stretching a little bit to sort of put the argument together in that way. So if you see performative time there and performative time invokes a citational mode of temporality that is on a kind of different plane from empirical time, but suggests that events are sort of distilled into the future, he's suggesting that the way this is set up, uh, you're going to see more and more of these types of events. Um, and so that, that, that's what I take to be the sort of central theoretical claim or sort of performance theoretical claim within it. And this was interesting to me partly because, um, uh, at, at WashU, we had Natalie Alvarez in to give a talk on her current research earlier this year. Um, uh, she is at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University. She has a grant from Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, to um, actually help train police officers in de-escalation. So she gave a presentation on this work at Wash U where she is helping to design training programs for police officers as they go into encounters with people in mental health crisis to help them de-escalate and avoid violent outcomes. So it's I would love to see the two of them together on a panel to talk about this because they are both theater performance academics who have engaged with the state, who have tried to put their energy, their thought, their um, praxis into the sphere of policing by, you know, uh, offering their own input, their own training. Um, 
one, and I don't think the proper distinction necessarily between them is that one of them believes that reform is possible and one of them it doesn't. But well, for one, uh, you know, Natalie's at working with a Canadian police force, not an American police force. There are probably differences there. But she was also dealing with the in-person de-escalation training. There's a moment in Anderson's article where he, you know, recounts how there's this sort of automated screen-oriented weapons training where the police officers are shown these video scenarios. And it's just a matter of when they need to draw their weapon. It's not, de-escalation is impossible. They are locked into a video game where they're going to need to shoot. And it's just a matter of when and if they do it at the appropriate time. And they also do de-escalation training that is in person. And that is the facet of police training that Alvarez is, is engaged with. So one of the things I wondered about Patrick's article was, if he'd had access to the de-escalation training, you know, if that was part of the civilian review board process, would he end up with a different conclusion? But yeah, um, and, and I think that's a really, I think that that's one of the things that is really exciting to hear that these different scholars are working in these similar ways, because I think it is about activating a conversation. One of the more striking passages for me in the Anderson piece was, um, was talking about the ways in which performance has long dealt with things like liveness and ephemerality and 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 disappearance and scripting and these kind of things, but hasn't really taken them out of into the question of actual mortality, actual violence, actual disappearances. And he's really mm-hmm. pressing upon that in terms of the the where does the field need to grow next in terms of if it's going to hold on to these as core inter- contributions to the the fields broadly um, uh, to the world, uh, then it needs to reckon with the ways, how does this actually deal with disappearances? How does this actually deal with mortality in a way that is not only of the past, but also of the present as it continues into the future? And that's, again, where I think performative time opens up interesting questions. I also found that like in the way that his work dovetails with previous work by John McKenzie and others that were thinking about the way that the rhetorics of performance studies are being deployed in certain kinds of structures of global capitalism, I was also thinking about a lot, possibly because of the course I was teaching this semester, but I was thinking about this question of what does it mean to revise or reform and thinking about it in relation to the academy itself in terms of uh, like the institution that I attended versus an institution that somebody 20 years later attended. There may be a new office, but the structures of harm may not have been changed. These questions of with historical exclusion or sort of traditional biases, like how much do the interventions that the that institutions like those I'm a part of right now, like I recognize at the particular institution I, I am now, I recognize how much has happened even in the decade I've been here to create uh, responsive structures, sort of transformative structures for that were oriented toward um, uh, what, for lack of a better word, inclusive principles. And yet when at times like this, when reunions are happening and previous eras of folks come onto campus, I'm reminded with stories that they tell of how recent the past is that was uh, mm-hmm. created these spaces as very hostile to especially queer, trans folks of color. And so this question of what does performative time mean for changing the academy 
is also mm-hmm. something I think that it's not part of what Anderson is asking, but I think it is building off of so the sort of the work of like Joe Roach in Cities and the Dead and the way that he begins that story, thinking mm-hmm. about the rituals of ac- academia. Um, I do think that this is an opportunity also, as so many folks and our colleagues listening are really invested in changing some of the violences in theater and performance studies uh, traditions, like how auditions happen or how bodies are talked about or who gets access to what opportunities. And yet, what is the role of reform in this? Like what is, and I think that this is, I think, uh, it, like you're talking about Alvarez and us talking together about Anderson does make me wonder if this is sort of opening, uh, uh, these are voices reminding us that of the ways in which thinking about our work in our loca- in our institutional locations, as well as in our critical engagements, as well as in the world at large, um, needs to do some self-interrogation in terms of like, mm-hmm. what do we think we're doing versus what impacts are we actually having and how are we actually contributing to making the world, as Caritha Mitchell says in the, um, in the, in the land acknowledgement that is included in Patrick Anderson's essay, uh, Caritha Mitchell sort of introdu- uh, concludes that land acknowledgement with how do we make sure that every space we enter is less hostile to more people? How do we hold on to the valid principle of that and also mm-hmm. understand the histor- the questions of performative time in relation to the limits of reformism and revision. Well, it's, there's so much in there that is really, really provocative and really interesting. I want to try to just flag a couple things without going on too long, but, um, you know, you, you remind me that, that, that Caritha's invocation in that way, it, it is in a way that's a reform, reform oriented impulse, right? Like we have this space, we have this structure, we have these functions and, uh, 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 you know, processes, procedures that we're engaged in, how do we make them less harmful in a way that's a question that I imagine a lot of, um, sort of reform oriented approaches to policing are asking. And it's not that a more radical sort of, you know, defunding or, or decarcerating approach or revolutionary approach isn't also about creating less harmful spaces, but, um, it is that is a sort of reformist question. Um, you mentioned earlier on in in what you just said the the questions of mortality themselves, right? Like, do performance studies scholars does performance theory embrace um, events where people are dying? Right. One of the signature and most powerful aspects of the concept of performance is, is that it is not a sort of self-enclosed aesthetic practice necessarily that it, per, that we are doing performance when we are taking real meaningful action. Um, and you can see, and scholars have made, you know, points of connection with military training, um, with, uh, the sort of theatrical language in the conduction of warfare. Um, there are topics that over the years have occurred to me as, oh, wow, that's a, that would make a really interesting performance studies article. Um, for example, the way that, you know, theaters can be used in, um, hostage scenarios or in terrorist actions. What is it about those spaces that makes them, um, available for that? And I think one runs up against a sort of ethical issue, right? What does it mean? Are we intellectualizing and creating academic content around, events where people's lives are at stake, where, um, the, the suffering is real and the consequences are, uh, of a high, you know, of a higher order. I think it's one of the strengths of Patrick's article that he takes pains to invoke, um, 
a sort of wide range of perspectives to cite a lot of uh, theorists and scholars, James Baldwin, uh, Sadia Hartman, so that it it does not come across that he is sort of intellectualizing police training to make a fancy theoretical article. It's it's really, um, I think, very ethically grounded. Um, so yeah, and there's there's a lot more to talk about. There there you know the, it it reminded me of um, a, a story from 2006 uh, where it, there was some reporting on training that was going on in the Israeli Defense Forces and certain figures high up in the IDF that were using um, Deleuze and Guattari in their theory in their theorizations of of urban space to try to come up with new military tactics and this kind of, you know, head shaking act, uh, reaction of like, whoa, why, how is our postmodern theory ending up in the training binders of soldiers in occupying armies? Um, and in some of that reporting, it was, there were officers who said that on their reading lists were Guy Debord, but also performance theorists, people in our anthologies, Gregory Bates and Clifford Geertz. So it reminds one that theory is, is, um, in a way it can be a tool that helps us interpret and helps us come up with new ideas, but that it's, you know, you can't, you can sort of separate it from the ideological dispositions of the people who wrote it. Well, and it's also, I mean, I think that, uh, that's where I think that Caritha Mitchell's phrase of this sort of question, what do you do in the moment? And then what do you, how do you maintain the consciousness of the bigger picture at the same time? Sort of this question of, of the action in the moment, the consequences that actions in the moment have, whatever spaces you're in, but then also how do we keep them connected to these bigger, these other questions and also reminding that us, and I think it's a good reminder for, for us all to sort of understand that, um, that theoretical tools are tools and they can be weaponized in different ways. I think we've seen this year uh, the word woke, the term critical race theory. These are tools that come out of a space of radicality that then end up being uh, appropriated and redeployed as weapons against the very efforts that led in the previous era that's happened with the term politically correct. You can go back and especially terms that were introduced by, by black women intellectuals often are terms that end up being become terms of abuse against the populations that those black women intellectuals often were developing those tools to describe. So, so it is a reminder of just that um, not only is theory not neutral, but it's also this sort of the practice of critical engagement. Uh, it's like, and I think that's one of the core interventions of Anderson's piece is we need to make sure that we don't remain precious in our own critical cul-de-sac thinking we're saying, like uh, thinking that our tools are neutral. We have to understand and put them in context. If we're talking about the uh, performance is watching somebody die in front of us on stage. Like, what does it mean when death is happening on the streets? You know, and and I think that this podcast this year has talked about how theaters have become sites um, in protests. We've we haven't talked about the way theaters have become notable sites in the violence in Ukraine. You know, these sort of ways in which theaters are part of a world, even in their insularity, and that is a pact that the in the ways that their walls against the world, but also are part of the world, is an interesting sort of bigger world world question that I think Patrick's Patrick's essay asks us to consider in it in the intimacies and the moment to moment, but also in the global structural, the bigger structures, ideological and social. Indeed. Indeed. 
So moving from um, moving from the serious and the significant and the political, we're now going to the ridiculous of awards. <laughs> uh, so I just sort of grabbed the transition mantle from you, panel. But I did please, think that we are we are moving from these big weighty questions to what is ultimately, I think, a kind of um, a fascinating additional structure, which has no ne nowhere near the kinds of import e uh, the, of many of the questions we've just been talking, but nonetheless become. Uh, their own structures of import and consequence. And so oh, yeah. part part of what uh, I think when we, I, I'll turn it back to you panel and sort of thinking about like when we were pondering topics, uh, awards came up because we are in, we are back in award season. Mm -hmm. After two years of the cycle of awards sort of being disrupted and, dis and disjointed, we're now back to Back to mm -hmm. having Tony Tony announcements, Pulitzer announcements, uh, book prize announcements, uh, Guggenheim announcements, all these announcements yeah. of prizes. You're you're teeing it up nicely. We batting around topics. I mean, I can say this from in, inside the sort of podcast planning uh, perspective, which is that you know we're always looking for things to talk about that are timely, and awards are always sort of there for the easy grabbing, right? There's the big awards that get announced at our conferences in the, in the summer, in the fall. There's the springtime when the, you know, big uh, prestige theater awards are, are given out. We might have even done an Oscars topic at some point. Um, but they're sort of, you know, they, they're, they're, they're tantalizing, right? They elevate certain things. Uh, I'll, I'll confess that when we're looking for um, articles and books to read for the podcast, I will typically look and see, well, what won the, you know, Bernard Hewitt last year like that it, it's something that's been elevated and and said and and sort of pronounced as this is the highest you know the the thing that we should look at and the thing most deserving of the last year um so you know there were some interesting uh facets of the tony nominations uh masi asari uh who's on the theater faculty at northwestern was nominated for her work on the lyrics of paradise square um the pulitzer prize in drama was awarded to um uh james imes for fat ham um but as we were talking about these more than the particulars we were sort of interested in the generalities of awards right what is the function they propose where's the sort of psychological space that they take up in our minds as artists and scholars and so uh you know brian I, i'm curious to know what your sort of um high level take on uh the concept of awards is well uh, as, as i joked as we prepared for this and, and i think several listeners in this podcast will know this about me is all you have to do is pull the string on awards on me and I can go and go and go. I mean, I spent uh, a good chunk of my life when I was not writing my dissertation, writing about the best supporting actress nominees. You know, so I've been thinking about awards. as a, I've taught a course about Miss America pageant, which I consider sort of to be in the same genre of award shows. Um, and and um, so right. I, I am very interested in awards, not as designations of merit. I actually don't really, especially if we're talking like high scale. I mean, the the Oscars are a complicated example, but the Tonys, I think, are are clearly are are expressly a marketing mechanism, uh, intentionally and consciously, with the idea of excellence being sort of the alibi. But um, but there is a way in which I think they're like I recently listened to the theater critic Helen Shaw uh, on a podcast talk with some folks in anticipation of the Tony Award nominations and what she. Named is sort of, I thought was really 
uh, sort of aligned in with what I think of and what I found, like looking at Oscars historically, re like watching the films of a particular year to think about them, is I think they're measures of a moment. They're measures of what is legible to a certain level of middle brow or upper middle brow tastemakers as being significant and important. Not necessarily, and that means they're legible to them. It doesn't mean that they are, but they make sense in the moment. And so one of the things I learned by looking at Best Supporting Actress nominees in the entirety of the entirety of the Oscars going that as long as the category existed for the 80 years or so that I was looking at it was you would always see names that you would be and movies that you're like really that was a thing how quickly we forget and and so there's this way in which they're often anointments they're often acknowledgments of past work they're often these kinds of moments that are about sort of marking t time. I really do think that awards are perhaps best understood as sort of uh, uh, periodizing devices, devices to understand when the cycle of time in performance making sort of shifts, you know? So, so there's a kind of way where we begin to sort of mark time by, like we can look back and we can see what was the Tony Award nominee in 2007, which we'll come up against in a little bit, um, you know, and what does that take us, where does that take us back to? Where does that take us back to? And I think, um, and the other thing I will say, in addition to them being sort of a taste calibration, like this was what made sense to people in this moment, people who were in a position to make a decision, they looked at this and they saw these were great, or at least good enough. Um, I think they are also are a reminder that um, one of the great things when you're an awards fiend, especially of a particular awards fiend, and since I'm sort of promiscuous with my awards, I track this in a lot of different ways. They're not consistent. They change. Like this year, one of the notable things about the Tony Awards is like the categories are all over the place. Like some have three, some have seven. You're like, and I thought, like, isn't the rules that there are four? No. And the rules change and they change year to year. One of the things like I had a student, uh, Michelle Hill, uh, as, as a master's student, did a project about the Pulitzer for drama under me a number of years ago before going on to do her PhD at Arizona State. And she read all the Pulitzer nominated plays and got a sent and and the thing that she points that pointed out in her study was how many years the Pulitzer isn't awarded mm -hmm. and oh. how many years the governing boards decide that the committee is wrong and they award something else. You know, it's like how these, how yeah. awards are arbitrary and capricious and yet they yes. also end up becoming interesting markers of time and taste long-term. Okay. So, so that's a great place for me to bring up one of my reactions to this because thank you i think it's it's it, perhaps it's awards 101 for us to recognize that the important way to look at this is not this was the best thing that was produced this year or this was the best actor in a musical this year that's absurd right it's it's a it's a sociological phenomenon it's a, it's a sort of organizational institutional phenomenon but the way you talk about the temporal aspect of it um, reminds me of a recent episode of the um, uh, Wesley Morris's podcast, Still Processing, New York Times sort of culture podcast. Um, and this episode has Wesley Morris and Daphne Brooks. And they begin by talking about lists, not awards, but the American top 40 pop music lists that they as Gen Xers grew up listening to on the radio and how significant that was for them and how they made a kind of private ritual, weekly ritual for them themselves out of listening to it. Um, and for them, it was a kind of sense of what is 
something is being asserted here. So there's an assertion that this is the center of the cultural field at this moment. And so, you know, they, I think, you know, Daphne Brooks would talk about how there were certain songs that were everywhere in her life and then they, you know, wouldn't get to the number one spot. And there's just this feeling of, oh, well, I'm being told that I'm on the outside of something, right? But it is exactly, I think your your sense that it's, you know, you can look back at them and in a way, the proper way to experience awards is to look back and feel that sense of like, oh yeah, it used to be, you know, this was that movie I loved, or this was the, the way that, you know, taste was sort of formulated or stamped as being something, um, at that moment. Now they are talking about top 40 lists, which ostensibly, probably this is BS too, but ostensibly are, you know, drawn from radio play data and not the pronouncement of some, board or industry that has voted or deliberated to come up with a consensus value judgment about something. Um, but there's still, a, they, they get in that podcast to a sense of, you know, canon formation. And is there an alternative way to judge culture from top 40 lists or, you know, uh, sort of data oriented lists or sort of canonical stamps of, of, of greatness. And, and Daphne Brooks brings, brings up the sort of alternate mode of stewardship of beloved cultural objects, citing Kara Keeling. So I guess, you know, I guess I'm going to pull your string again, <laughs> but, um, this had me wondering about alternate modes. Like, do we need awards? Because I think we do. I think we need some, there's, there's a need for, us to be able to look at certain things and say, what's the thing this year? Or what are the things this year? I remember in an earlier, much earlier episode of this podcast, I think Harvey, Harvey Young for his draft brought up awards and his take was, we should not have a prize winner. We should have the 10 books of the year. We should have a sort of pluralistic, non-ranked, uh, grouping of significant works of that year, because I think he found it frustrating to try to you know, name the one book that's the one. So I guess my follow-up question to you, Brian, is do we need awards? Could you imagine a United States without a Tony award winner or without the Miss America pageant? Is there a function that these organizations provide that we need or, and are there better models to do what they ostensibly do? Well, I do think, I mean, we're almost at a moment when there might not be a Miss America pageant anymore. So awards are not permanent awards come and go like we saw the golden globes meltdown you know so it's like they're they're yeah. odd little and, and miss america we could do without I yeah think. i mean but it's it's like but it also with miss america in particular i think it opens up the question of of what is the tradition-based aspects of a dedication to awards you know, if the Pulitzer went away tomorrow, there would be a lot of folks that were saying, but this is a tradition of recognizing we have this, you know. And so I think that there is some ways where um, and many times when you'll hear defenses of awards, especially in the theater and the literary arts, you'll talk about them as being sort of um, uh, awards as being sort of important opportunities to bring attention to. You know, sort of like often Oprah's book club, if we think of it as another kind of an award situation, it was not an award. It was a business driven set of decision making that would select us that would anoint a certain title as a new bestseller because Oprah said so everybody would buy it. But it ended up sort of lifting up certain titles and then contributing them to the conversation. And there is some defense, I think, about awards that talk about they are really they are deeply impactful for those who receive the designation of them. 
there are ways in which that is uh, a it enters into, and this is where I think it's really important that we not be glib as scholars uh, in the academy about awards, is because awards are really an exemplar of the fact that within the academy and within the American culture at large, there is a real dedication to prestige economy. We transact into prestige economy. Like one of the things that Michelle Hill's uh, work points out is the Pulitzer Prize comes with the same amount of money it came with in the 1930s, $1,000 and a lunch. But if you're a Pulitzer Prize winner, that changes a lot about how you operate, how you exist. You know, it's sort of this kind of like, you know, and like it doesn't help. Like there's stories of uh, a Best Supporting Actress and a winner who would go and say like would bring her Oscar with her when they would when she wasn't getting treated well at hotel desks or, you know, it doesn't always mean a lot. You know, it doesn't do much for you, but it can be a badge of honor and it can be something especially saying that this person has been designated as being sort of substantively, con you know, and so like actors, it can be transformative for their careers. It can also for women in particular, it can lead to sort of very imperfect, uncertain results. But there are ways in which it is about prestige economy. And I think mm -hmm. the academy and uh, the American culture industry is really operating in this space of prestige economy. You know, we we yeah. we like what is the where's the degree from? Who published it? You know, this kind of thing uh, folds into that, and that's where I think in a system in which we operate, it operates neatly as kind of parallel mm -hmm. to capitalism. It it determines value that is not necessarily attached to dollars, and so mm -hmm. it is something that in the theater and in the academy it is something that is uh, like, I don't know how many folks in theater departments or in programs have sort of brought an award to the dean or the president saying, we're, see, we're doing real work, sure. you know, and there is that way that sure. it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a metric, um, yeah. even if it isn't actually a metric of anything of any tangible meaning. So I think there's a sort yeah. of a way in which um, I think we can be cynical and glib about awards, but I also think that we, they are sort of a measure of the prestige economy in which the academy is deeply implicated. And, uh, and so, um, but also like when you get an award, it feels good. I'm happy. Like oh, yeah. it's like my, the director of the program in theater Princeton was nominated for a Tony for lighting design for, for the Scottish play, I will say. And, uh, and it was like, yay team, you know, there's kind yes. of these aspects of it that are about how, and I think when, when uh, colleagues um, receive uh, recognition for the work that they've done at award ceremonies or in other spaces like uh, major fellowships, uh, there's a moment yeah. in which there is a sense of sense of community of like, oh, the work we does, we do is being recognized. Oh, that person, that is a great book. And so there's, I think it operates on a lot of different levels, both structural as well as um, and temporal, but also in terms of the emotional aspect of belonging and sense of connection. Absolutely. I would add one more facet to it, which is I think there's a self-representation of the group. And this is me having read read too much social theory, but there's there's the sense of like, you know, I got honorable mention for this or I won the award or I didn't and it makes me feel or makes my department feel good or bad. Um, there's the way that the Tonys as, as, and we're looking ahead to our third topic where this fact is mentioned explicitly in the documentary, which is that the Tonys are where you, you go and you sell your show, not where you find out what the best show was. Um, but there's also a way that the, the awards, uh, institutions are in the business of self-representation for their industry. So 
you know, the Oscars are, have been such a turbulent and weird and fraught, I don't know, uh, tradition, especially in recent years. And I'm one of those people who I like to sit and watch the Oscars with my friends, but in general, I always feel a little bit disappointed and confused at the end of it. Why did I put so much time into it? Um, but I think these institutions keep going because there is a kind of totemistic self-representation going on. Who, whoever wins you know, the best picture Oscar or the Atha book prize, what's going on in that ceremony is the representation of the whole enterprise, the whole field, the whole industry for itself. And a sort of lifting up and saying, look at us. Aren't you ecstatic to be in this group? Look at what we do. And so in a way, I, I, I don't think it discounts the importance of who wins and the ego investment and the, um, you know, representational, uh, uh, politics that are part of that, which are sort of partial and about who, what type of work, what type of person is able to be elevated to this. But on a separate level, it's about the, the, the whole group coming together and celebrating itself. And I think that's why it's going to be hard to get rid of things like the Oscars, even though it seems like we really should. I, I'm all for longer lists. I'm all for releasing the long list. I'm all for releasing, like sharing, spreading the wealth of this. But there is also something where uh, the list don't make sense unless there is kind of like a sense of so there's, and that's again, the curatorial sensibility that we often really are dedicated to. And uh, one last mm -hmm. thing on awards. Um, I, one of my favorite things about the Oscars is watching people on Twitter and elsewhere talk, complain about how the Oscars are too long and too boring. And I'm like, have you never watched the Oscars? That's a feature. <laughs> that's a genre feature of the Oscars. They're long and boring. Yes. And, yeah. and it's this kind of but it's also an example of how awards introduce novelty every year. Yeah. There's a way in which yeah. they feel new and fresh. And there's and I think that that's also part of their appeal is there is a sense of discovery and surprise. And there is a sense of this year's might be different, but this year's might bring a surprise. And that novelty is the addictive feature of it is. And that's where like award shows, whether it be Eurovision or something like that, like award shows and are remain one of the only spaces where live television and live broadcast uh, engages with the cultural. You know, um, you know, and so there is that sense of novelty and surprise and spontaneity that rewards also have. And that that is yeah. something that I think people are very attracted to, even as they complain about how long and tedious and terrible uh, things are about award shows. There's the novelty. There's the real timeness. There's the shared timeness uh, that Indeed. in the ritual and tradition, that is a big part of it. Indeed. Um, moving on to our third topic in which, as I have mentioned, awards um, are implicated in their, uh, you know, brute economic reality. We watched the HBO Max documentary Spring Awakening, those you've known. Um, in a nutshell, this is a documentary about the 2021 reunion concert from of the original Broadway cast of the Spring Awakening musical, which I believe opened on Broadway in 2006 and, and played through 2000. Eight, um, delightful watching experience. Uh, Brian, why don't you start us off? Give give us your your takeaway. Should people watch this, and 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 if so, why? Well, I think it's a really. I mean, I would say yes. I would say yes. That I mean, I'm granted. I'm a musical theater scholar, and I'm interested in these questions in certain ways. But one of the things that I think is really 
unexpectedly interesting about what otherwise is sort of a fan service documentary. It's sort of like if you love Spring Awakening, you'll watch it and you'll have all kinds of new, some new information, but some footage you may have never seen before and some back behind the scenes stories. So it got all that sort of standard fan service documentary thing. But there's elements as performance scholars that I think is, for me, I found just catnip for me, which is it really marked in some ways, in ways I didn't fully understand until watching it, uh, sort of the distance of 15 years um, mm -hmm. in terms of there's certain things that are part of the documentary that, um, you know, how how recent the YouTube revolution was, because in some ways, Spring Awakening was the musical that came out in 2007. And so just a couple years after YouTube, but they actually released a video that was designed to be shared on YouTube. Huh. And then there's this way in which like the doc, the video documents how much of a cultural phenomenon, how many t well, talk shows they were on and how they were a part of a Gap ad. And remember when Gap ads mattered and this kind of this kind of interesting time capsule of this pivot um, that I thought was really striking. And then there are two yeah. other pieces I would note that sort of mark the relative the notable distance. <laughs> Um, between of this 15 years. One is how much work was being done without any of the surround of intimacy coordination. I mean, granted the turn toward including intimacy direction and intimacy coordination and sensitivity stuff and all this stuff, like this was the, like, it was a bunch of 15 year olds doing all this kind of stuff, rehearsing with grown men in the room and figuring it out. And there was not a lot of other. So it's a it's a striking example. And even we see the restaging, we see the restaging done. We see the actors leading the vocabulary of intimacy choreography, not the director. And so it's an interesting mechanism of just how recent the turn is, but also how. Uh, striking it is that a show like uh, many of the actors talk about, could they do this show today? And they ask it in different questions, but I don't think you could do this show today without an apparatus of emotional support and of intimacy coordination. And it, it's just a fascinating yeah. documentation of that. And then finally, the thing I will say is one phenomenon in the American musical theater that is really worth noting over the last 15 years is how much the audience has pivoted from middle-aged folks to younger audiences, middle-aged folks and families to teen audiences. And what we can see, and this is something I hadn't drawn the connection on, which I'm sort of embarrassed because I'm such an aficionado of award shows and I also know I've done a lot with In the Heights, but Spring Awakening and In the Heights are the first two back-to-back -back Tony Award winning musicals that are centered on teenagers. Mm -hmm. And centered on teenagers with secondary stories dealing with adults and parents, but not, but as secondary stories. Mm -hmm. And so it be, introduces a genre that we can see sort of reaching a kind of an apex with something like Dear Evan Hansen, where we see a, a, a protagonist story driven by young people, but an emotionally substantial story uh, that also exists for grownups, right? And yeah. which is arguably the rise of the YA musical. And we see, if we look at Tony nominees in the, in the 15 years since, very few fields of Tony Award nominated nominated musicals don't include what we might call the young adult or the YA musical. So we see in Spring Awakening this pivot of capitalizing on an impassioned teenage fan base that is not a family fan base, which had existed long before, like Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast or whatever. Um, uh, but it's sort of there's this pivot that I think we can see there and we can see how historical how, how important Spring Awakening was in that thing. So I think one of the great things about this documentary is it allows us in its very structure to, um, to hold the present and the past in dynamic tension. And for mm -hmm. me as a theater historian, there's something very compelling about that. And for I don't sure, know that, sure. you know, and so I think that there's, 
even if you don't know Spring Awakening, I think there's ways that sort of the bigger questions that guide our field are very much infused. It's also a very sort of low-rent documentary. There's not a lot of experts. There's only a handful of talking heads. They don't talk yeah. to all the cast. It's it was a pretty quick and dirty documentary, but it's uh, given that, it's actually quite rewarding, even if you only have a glancing familiarity with the source material. And I haven't even yeah, talked yeah. about the Vedekind and the fact of like how how the how the how the topics that are at the center of Spring Awakening are the very center of the topics that are being banned in schools and and libraries. Sure, 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 sure. You know, we haven't yeah. even talked about the content questions, but I just think in terms of the recent the distance of the present from the recent past is really something that's underscored in this little documentary on HBO. Uh, yeah. I picked that up as well. The 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 sense of how young they were when they were in it, the you know the the question of could this be staged today? Um, I agree with you that it is in a way it's a sort of trifle. It's not it doesn't feel like substantial documentary making. It feels like promotion, but it reminded me of the um, the documentary. Um, what is it? The best worst thing that uh, that ever could have happened, which is in certain ways similar. It's a documentary about the 1981 Sondheim musical interviews with all the original cast, but this time it's 30 years later, and so the. This it's present in Spring Awakening, where some of those cast members have become household names. They're mega stars. Most of them have not. And there's a subtext. They don't dive into it really, but there's a subtext of, oh wow, everyone's going to get together after 15 years. Um, and there's Jonathan Groff, and there's Leah Michelle, and there's other people who've had you know good theatrical careers. But then also, oh yeah, like what has happened? What has happened in 15 years? And in Merrily, we roll along because it's about a failure. It's not about a hit. It's about a flop. Um, they really dive into that a lot because a lot of people involved in that were, you know, it was a def defining experience in their lives. Um, and this was, you know, I, I, I'm interested to talk about the Vatican, uh, and this ties in really to my major experience of watching this, which was the voyeurism. And there's of course the kind of voyeuristic angle of this is a musical about teenagers and their sexual uh, lives being discovered. Right. And that's partly what I think spring awakening the Vatican is about too. But more than that, there's a kind of nostalgia by proxy and voyeurism going on where you're watching, if you're a, if you're a theater person who got into theater in high school or college and you had your social life and your brain transformed by being in one of these bonding, ex intense bonding experiences with a group of other young people on stage. You're watching a bunch of theater dorks do all the most embarrassing theater stuff. It, like what people are like when they're giddy and they're in a rehearsal room and they're about to go on stage. But you realize, oh, for these people, their version of, you know, me when I was in the matchmaker in high school <laughs> was a Broadway smash hit, right? But they were that age. So you're watching these... 30 and 40 somethings go back and relive the, you know, sort of forming event of their life and you're watching them experience that. And, and, and it, I call it voyeurism because it's, I think I'm tempted into saying that because of the, you know, the, the, the content, the, the nature of what Spring Awakening is about, which is not, it is not a, I don't think a exploitative show, though, if you, the more you know about Frank Vatican, the original playwright, the more you realize that he had some, I don't know, some, some predilections and proclivities that make you wonder where the line is between a, a you know, solemn and ethical uh, and heartfelt expose of what's happening 
to young people when their sexual knowledge is suppressed and 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 they're um, burdened in that way. There's a a very fine line between that and trading on the sexuality of young people as being part of the attraction that brings people into the theater. Um, so it's not, you know, there's, there's that kind of voyeurism and in a way there's the voyeurism that every documentary that really gets, gives you an intimate look at a person's experience is also voyeuristic. Well, it's definitely, as you named, it's a midlife documentary. It's a documentary that is about sort of, uh, and indeed, the distance of the present and the past. It's like, it's a reunion documentary. And what is a reunion, but a sort of a sense of like who we were then and who are we now and how does it track and what were the unresolved. And and there's, I think that's what the emotional heart of it is. But it's also, I think there is a kind of way in which uh, uh I, I, the part of the story I'm really fascinated by is one of the one of the figures who ended up not having a superstar career is is the uh, the actor who played uh, who played Ilsa, uh, Ilsa in yes. in this, and she was the one that they'd maintained this text chain and she said we need to do a reunion and it was be and between her and Groff it happened but then it also allowed them like folks to give name to the ways in which their own experiences were not named in the process. Like Groff talks about how he wasn't out yet. She talks about how she hasn't really disclosed the fact that she had experienced in her life the very subjects that she was singing about on stage. And indeed, it activates this kind of, I think, uh, for me, as sort of a critical awareness of like, uh, uh, perhaps looping back to what we were thinking about when we were talking about Anderson is, has the theater industry really changed? You know, in the in the changes of the last few years, interrupt, inter, like creating all these spaces about not um, not creating exploitative rehearsal rooms, introducing the question of consent into rehearsal rooms, and as we saw with the recent scan- controversy about photographs being taken in theaters, the question of what counts as violation of consent. Um, mm-hmm. If you have agreed not to take pictures and you take a picture, is that not just intellectual property, but is that also violation of consent and certain issues? You know, so mm-hmm. opening and this shifting vocabularies, yet the apparatus remains remarkably similar. There are more people of color, more women uh, behind the tables and sort of uh, pulling the puppet strings of Broadway musicals. But in most cases, it remains mostly white, mostly gay as a song that was written in the same period names. And so so I think there is a question of what are these adjustments that have happened in the industry? Are they actually transformative or are, or, and, and you can see that even these, the, these young, these, er, they're not middle-aged yet, but they're on their way toward it. You can see some of them thinking like, how would I feel about my own kid? How would I feel? I can't imagine doing this. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't, I, like as a more experienced actor now, as opposed to a neophyte actor now, I would never choose the, to, to do this every night. Yep. You know, because like the the actors talk about how uh, one of the actors talks about the emotional ravages of doing a particular storyline and how there was no apparatus in the pro in the in the production to create support for that where there might be now. But are those adjustments uh, meaningful or enough? And those are those are sort of the other questions, I think, that the that the piece left me thinking with. And there's another side of it, which is that the, you know, hiring professionals to help manage those types of encounters on stage, you're adding more and more professional sort of bureaucratic structure to, to theatrical production. You would not get the same result. I don't think you necessarily, I I have no opinion on whether or not, you know, you, you should or should not. I think if you're asking 15 year olds to go on stage and, uh, you know, work themselves in an actorly process into being suicidal, or simulating, you know, sexual encounters on stage when they're 15 or 16. Yeah. Like there should be support and some sort of 
<laughs> some sort of way to uh, protect those people. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's a it's a big ball of wax. I was in this show, not not the musical version, but the Vatican in college, and we. Uh, you know, this is way back in the mid nineties, but then we also did the musical here at Wash U and it was a fat, it was interesting to watch in, in both cases. I felt like even though the nature of the material is very, you know, there's, we had a show that our students here at Wash U decided they didn't want to do next year because it, um, dealt with suicide. The students felt that there had been some terrible events on campus among the student body here this year, and they didn't want to do a show about suicide next year. So we scotched a show. The nature of this show is that it has that in it. It has, you know, issues of sexual abuse, all sorts of potentially traumatizing material, but the show, the musical went over really well here several years ago. Students really loved it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Well, it's, and I think that that's that I think that we've, a lot of our colleagues have experienced stories of like, like shows that, were on their way to production or sometimes into production. And then the reins had to be shifted and rearranged because the students were uh, saying like, no, we can't do this every night or no, it, we don't feel like there's enough structures and support. But it is also this space of like part of what you see and what I think a lot of, if you've ever had a campus production of Spring Awakening or Rent or any of these other, like it becomes a galvanic transformative experience of being able to use the safety, the relative safety and structure of theater to go there, but then be able to use that community and that structure mm -hmm. of theater to come back. And so there is that paradox. I think we're still uh, figuring out what is the balance? What is the balance of appropriate support and appropriate structures mm -hmm. of safety and technique? Because uh, I do think that intimacy choreography is fundamentally about technique, not about safety. It's about like fight choreography. It's this sort of thing about how do we do mm -hmm. something that is replicatable so that folks can approach it and not have to rely upon inspiration uh, or uh, spontaneity in order mm -hmm. to make something work. And so, so I think that I think as as departments begin to shift to figure out who are the essential personnel for different productions, I think, and what are the skill sets that are necessary for a healthy faculty. Um, I think that this is a, uh, it opens up interesting questions because I, I do think we did Spring Awakening five years or so yeah. ago. It was huge. Students loved it. I don't think we could do it now. And yeah. oh, I'll be interested in five years if they'd be interested to do it again. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, so I think that's part yeah, of the cyclical aspect. Of I don't know. Um, anyways, we're, we're on the precipice of another uh, giant topic, but we need to wrap things up. Um, uh, we will conclude with our drafts. These are recent musings, things that are crossing our scholarly intellectual radar, uh, works in progress, thoughts in progress. Um, Brian, what, what's your draft for the episode? I think my draft for the episode is just simply going to be a book recommendation. Some of some readers who might follow me on Twitter or follow my newsletter might know that I do this. Last summer, I started a summer book club where I pick a, a series of books that I read and invite people to join me in conversation over Zoom on a some, on some Wednesday afternoon during the summer. And it started yesterday, and the book we read was Isaac Butler's, um, the recent book called The Method or How the 20th Century Learned to Act. And it's a book that's been on my radar. It's a book that's been on my shelf. It's a book that's been begging me to read it ever since it came out, but I just haven't had the moment to do it. And so the book the book club in some ways forced me to do it. And I got to say, uh, if you're looking for a good page-turning novel you might, and you also want to do some homework, get the Butler book. It is one of the rare works of theater history that is written in a novelistic form that is deeply researched and deeply, deeply informed and also reads... Um, 
like narrative nonfiction. And so it's one of those rare examples in our field of a really robust uh, work of narrative nonfiction that is just a pleasure to read, full of layers and layers of gossip and chisme, but also uh, finds a way to tell a story. I mean, I will say there was very little about the story told in this book that I hadn't encountered before, but I will say also, I understand everything so much better than I ever had in terms of how the Moscow art became the group, became the actor's studio and beyond that narrative, which infuses so much of 20th century training and technique, and also the fantasy of inspiration as a way to guide ourselves through emotionally challenging work as opposed to using an intimacy coordinator, you go with the inspiration, go with your gut, like that tension that exists in the American theater, so much is activated here. And also, um, so I just highly recommend the book. And I definitely think it's, it's a beach read. Who thought that a book about a book about acting theory could be a beach read? But um, read it, you know, so I just have a lot of praise for the book. And it's one of those things where as a theater, as a trained theater historian, and here's a theater history book written by somebody who's not a trained theater historian. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's he it's amazing work. And it's very teachable, very readable. And you'll, you'll, your understandings of the topic will be deepened. And if you're not an expert, you will learn a lot. Well, this is a, a ringing endorsement from Professor Brian Herrera. I'm, I'm looking at the Amazon page now, and it, it looks like they don't need additional endorsements for the for the dust jacket cover flap. Um, but it's really, it's it's a very exciting book. It's a well-launched book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I've been looking at that as well and, and, and wanting to read it. And I will re add it to my beach read list, Brian. Um, my draft similarly is a, a book uh, about a book. I can't recommend it yet because I haven't, I've just begun to read it. But um, this came across my Twitter feed. It's, um, it's a archaeological study, major archaeological study called The Power of Ritual in Prehistory, Secret Societies and Origins of Social Complexity by, by Brian Hayden, um, because I've been doing some work on Freemasonry, those rituals, thinking of them as performance. I've been looking at and looking at, you know, um, early performance theory, uh, Schechner and Turner, this book caught my eye. Um, but basically the, and it's not brand new, it's from 2018, but the basic argument is that if you look at the archaeological record in, in, across a, a great many places, North America, Africa, um, there is a pattern where ritual and secret societies emerge um, alongside grain surplus. So the argument is that once you have grain surplus and you have the, the makings for a, a sort of rudimentary state and political power structure, in many different times and places, you suddenly get secret societies, societies that have a ritual-based initiation rite and a ritual uh, knowledge production practice. Um, and the argument, though, is that basically the function of ritual at those in those early moments is to collect and generate political power and create social inequality. So. I think, you know, not many people will be as naive to think that ritual is always something that just benefits humanity and, and makes everyone feel good. Um, the, but I think when we encounter ritual in our performance theory, um, uh, settings, we tend to think of Turner and communitas. We think of social drama. We think so think of ritual as a way to process, um, conflict and disequilibrium and, and ritual. And Durkheim is about, is, is this way too. Dur you know, the, the cult for Durkheim is a way for the collective to recognize itself. And, and there's these senses in which ritual is a sort of positive and healthy thing for the society. This argument is that actually, no, it's, it's really about 
collecting grain, collecting political power, and and forming an elite class through uh, ritual secrecy. So it's a, it's an alternate take on ritual that um, that is pretty interesting. So I'm excited to read that. I, w- I will t- tap in again to say that um, one of the things that in our conversation yesterday uh, with some colleagues, uh, we ended up talking about one of the successes that Isaac Butler does in writing about the method. He writes about it as almost a religious movement or the history of a cult. And in some ways, this idea of consolidating and acting elite is in some ways what the arc of the book is about. And so this question of how ritual, how secrecy, how mystery inflects uh, the sort of formulation of a group, but then also the consolidation of folks knowing things that other people don't is definitely part of the Butler. So we might be beginning a graduate seminar on theater cults. I don't know. Um, so sign, uh, <laughs> sign, sign me up, <laughs> sign me up. Yeah. And theater productions work the same way. Yeah. You're, you're inside, you get all this rich, like quasi ritually produced knowledge. You're on the inside of something that other people feel they're on the outside of. Um, at any rate, uh, Brian, always a pleasure, always so much to talk about and think about with you. I really appreciate your, your, um, being on the episode with me. Um, listeners, uh, this, uh, may mark the beginning of a summer hiatus, but there will be an episode before too long. So thank you for downloading. Thank you for streaming and we'll be back to you before too long. On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>